This time on Across the Peak, Rich and I bring you an amazing story of wilderness survival with grizzly attack survivor Todd Orr. Welcome to the Across the Peak podcast, the show where Rich and Justin discuss preparedness, the birds and the bees, guns, history, tattoos, and well, basically all the stuff your old man should have taught you. Rich Brown's a failed 70s child actor, retired Marine Corps officer and former cop. Justin Carroll, he's a washed up former special operator, half-assed author, and adventurer at large. Learn life skills, harden the fuck up, and become a dangerous man. Get your damn boots on, gents, because we're going across the peak rich what's going on brother another day on the farm a man sitting around the fire and eating a little bowl of chili roger that man that sounds like a pretty awesome day um dude i know we've got intro stuff to go over what did we do this week and what we're drinking and stuff but let me just tell you, I, I am on the edge of my seat for this interview, man. Yeah, this interview is going to be freaking crazy. Uh, my good friend Todd Orr, the grizzly bear survivor that we've probably all seen the video of him uh, that went viral. And so he is our guest today. Yeah, and we'll, we'll make sure we've got links to that stuff in the show notes. And I don't want to spend a, a too much time. We'll, t- we'll try to stay on task and not have too many sidetracks here. But uh, we do need to cover our intro stuff, so... Uh, what are you drinking, buddy? I'm drinking Guinness, man. Dark beer and, and uh, chili on a on a cold day. Sounds pretty good to me. Doesn't get much better than that, man. Uh, brother, Sam Adams Winter Lager is back. It is that time of year. I Man, so one year, I said I wasn't going to sidetrack too much, but just to illustrate how much I love this stuff, it, it's only available for about three or four months, and, and uh, several years ago, Every time I would buy a 12-pack of it, I would buy two, and I would just stick one in storage in my laundry room, and I enjoyed some amazing Sam Adams Winter Lager pretty much all summer long. <laughs> uh, that's that's probably going a little overboard, but uh, but man, I love this stuff. I thought up there where, where you live in, in uh, Portland, Maine, that shit was available all year long. Well, it, you, you'd think it should be, right? It's uh, it's wintertime pretty much nine months out of the year up here, but you would you would definitely think so. Hey, so what did you do this week? That was ATPAF. Man, I don't even know. I don't even have anything great prepared for this. Um, let's see. What did I do? Well, uh, I'll be honest. My plans got thrown a little bit off track because I had to fly out to the West Coast for some work uh, stuff that was going on out there. Uh, I didn't get quite as much as I wanted to done, but I will tell you, I did read an amazing book this week, and it's not our book of the week, but... I'll just put the plug out there for it. It's called In Harm's Way, and the author is Doug Stanton, and it is about the it's the story of the USS Indianapolis, uh, which was the last major vessel sunk during World War II, and uh, about 300 of those boys survived and stayed out there on the ocean and mostly just in life vests for about four and a half days, man, and it is a crazy story, and it, it actually dovetails pretty well with this episode. It does, man, and uh, maybe that should be the book of the week. Okay, all right. Well, book of the week. Let's talk about it at the end of the show. Yeah, then. totally. Um, and we, we'll probably do a podcast on that or something because that is an amazing story. If, if the listener is not familiar with the, the Indianapolis, uh, as far as this week for me, you know, it's Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, man. You know, that's what I do, and uh, shoot with my training buddies and uh, putting some rounds down range and proving my skills, getting ready for IDPA next month, and. Uh, 
the match coming up. So that's what I'm doing, bro. I love it, man. I love it. So uh, that's what we did this week. That's what we're drinking. Let's go ahead and get into the show. Why don't you talk a little bit about Todd and and how you know him and and where we're going with this interview? Yeah, I met Todd, I don't know, probably four years ago. And I don't know if we talk about it. We'll talk about it maybe just briefly on the show, too, when, when we get Todd on the line. But I met him through my my business partner and, and friend, Mike Seeklander, and I've been hiking with him out in Montana many times and uh, stayed with his folks, stayed over at Todd's house. And then the next thing you know, two years ago, he gets uh, mauled by a grizzly twice and almost killed. And uh, Todd is just an amazing guy. He has an amazing story that goes far beyond what happened to him on that uh, October day in 2016 where he was almost killed. And we tied I wanted to go into that backstory a little bit because you won't hear that on some of the other shows that Todd has been on uh, is the stuff that he did leading up to the the day that he was attacked. And I think that's all the accumulation of all those years in the woods is probably what saved his life. Absolutely, man. Once you hear this thing, you're going to realize this guy, the knowledge that he had and the presence of mind under this extreme situation that Honestly, Rich, it's difficult for you or I to even fathom, and it's it's probably difficult for anyone to imagine unless they have lived through that. is is unbelievable, man. I hear him saying like, "Oh yeah, do, you know," uh, I, I've heard him on other interviews and stuff, and the whole time I'm just like, "Man, if that were happening to me, I, I, I don't know where my mind would be, but I don't, you know, I don't know if I would have the same mental discipline that he had." So anyway, let's not uh, let's not dawdle too much, man. Let's not kill too much time here, and let's go ahead and get him on and and get his story going let's do it todd welcome to the show man well thanks guys i appreciate the opportunity yeah we really appreciate you taking the time and uh i I, i've been looking forward to this episode for quite some time so uh like rich said with act one and where there's a a kind of a definitive event that we're going to talk about here but before that uh can you tell us about uh where you come from where you grew up uh whatever history you want to go into about yourself well, sure. <clears throat> yeah, I grew up in uh, Ennis, Montana, little town southwest Montana here along the Madison River, and started uh, second grade there in Ennis, and just living at the fish hatchery against the mountains and learning how to fly fish and hunt and camp and dirt bike and snowmobile and just enjoying the outdoors that Montana has to offer. And so you've mentioned the fish hatchery. So for the listener that, that doesn't know, man, tell us about uh, your dad and his relationship to the fish hatchery. Well, my dad was the fish hatchery manager out there. We moved there in 1973 and just, you know, right at the base of the mountains along the Madison River. And we just moved into town. And the first thing dad told me is like, he's like, jump in the Jeep and let's go down to the Madison River and I'll teach you how to fly fish. So I'd been in Montana for just a couple hours and I'm on the Madison River fly fishing. And my parents were both just love fishing. So that was kind of their life. And my dad had been a fisheries biologist, and that's what brought us to Montana, to the fish hatchery. Yeah, and the last time I was out there, a couple of months ago, man, your mom and dad had just got back from Alaska and had been fishing up there, if I'm correct in that. Yeah, my brother moved up to Alaska about a year, year and a half ago. And so my folks went up to visit, and they basically took a two-week trip and did a lot of fishing, and both on the ocean and a lot of streams. And had a great time. That's kind of their life, hunting and fishing. That's how I grew up, was in the woods 
every day after school, every weekend we were camping, we were bow hunting, we were on a lake or a river fishing. And that was my life growing up in Montana, always about the outdoors. And uh, for the listener, because I know what your brother does, and I think it's pretty freaking cool. Could you tell the listeners of what took your brother to Alaska and maybe where he was before that? Yeah, he's a geologist, and he spent about 15 years in Hawaii on the Kilauea volcano as the head geologist volcanologist there. So he was the guy you see on the Discovery Channel or on TV out there dipping lava samples and in the big heat suits and doing all this stuff on the on the big island. So a number of times I got to go down there and kind of volunteer and be out there on the death zone watching all these uh, lava eruptions and things going on there. And that took him up to Alaska working for the USGS up there in Anchorage now. Uh, that, man, that's awesome. That's That sounds like just an incredible place and way to grow up. And I got to be honest, man, I'm, I'm a little bit jealous about that. Maybe one day that's what uh, <laughs> a little more close to what my life will look like. So uh, where did you go to college, Todd? And what did you uh, what did you study? Well, I grew up in Ennis and then graduated from high school and moved over to Bozeman, which is just an hour away right near Yellowstone Park here. And went to MSU, Montana State University, in fish and wildlife management. And got a degree in fish wildlife management and started started working with the Forest Service here in Bozeman and do all their trails engineering. So I'm in the woods every day for work. I'm in the woods on the weekends, in the summer. I'm, I just everything I do is outside and both job and recreational related. Yeah, man. And that and I, I, we're recording this during elk season, right, Todd? Yes, uh, middle of the general hunting season right now. I was out chasing elk yesterday and decided to take the day off and rest my legs and talk to you guys. I know, man. I, when uh, I asked you if you'd come on the show, and I'm like, oh, man, I caught him right in the middle of elk season. He's not going to want to come on. <laughs> well, if I'd, have, if I'd have killed something yesterday, you guys would have to wait another day or two. Hey, man, tell us about uh, – this is something when I first met you um, after meeting you for about an hour, just like your dad took you down and taught you how to – out of fly fish, you ended up throwing me in a cold lake in in the mountains of Montana and making me do some surfing. Can you tell us about the Montana lake surfing? Oh, the Mo- the Montana surf riders, I think yeah. they called it. Yeah, uh, yeah, we just uh, using a regular surfboard, like a California type surfboard, uh, behind the boat on the lakes here in Montana, and just a lot of fun. Get out there and you're you're carving, you're being towed like you're wakeboarding, but you're carving on the side of the the wave and the surf and over the top and uh, just a great time and you know something else to do in Montana in the summer. It's a kind of a short season, but we try to get the most out of it. Oh yeah, have you ever heard of that before, Justin? I sure hadn't, man. That's that's definitely a new one for me. That's a thing, bro. That's a thing. They do that. Yeah, <laughs> they do that. that wake surfing behind the boat where the guys will just uh, let go of the rope and they're surfing right behind the boat. But we're surfing back about twenty feet so you can cross the wave, cross the wake jump over it, do a lot of other tricks and stuff on the side of it with a real surfboard. That's awesome, man. Well, Todd, obviously you're, you're an extremely avid outdoorsman and obviously it's elk season and we're lucky, uh, lucky that we got a little bit of your time here to be able to record this today. But, um, how, how involved are you in hunting currently? Like how much is that, uh, it, what else do you hunt? How much time do you spend doing it? How long you've been doing it? That sort of thing. Well, I grew up following my dad in the woods when I was seven, eight years old, chasing the elk around and just following in his footsteps and tried to learn everything I could from him. And then when I was 12 years old, I was able to hunt on my own. And so hunting with a rifle during the general season. And when I turned 14, I decided I wanted to get into the bow hunting. 
So I started bow hunting at age 14 and was addicted to the bow hunting every second I could. I'd be in the, in the fall, I'd be in the woods, I'd get home after school in high school and I'd jump on my motorcycle, strap the bow on the back, head to the mountains and try to hunt till dark. And then when I was in college, I would try to schedule my classes as much as possible to give me a three-day weekend or give me half days to hunt and just addicted to the bow hunting mostly. And then back in like 1990, I got into the snowboarding and dislocated my shoulders and got a big wreck and couldn't pull my bow. So I had to give up the bow hunting. I didn't want to go back to the rifle hunting. So I decided I'd try with a pistol. So for the last 28 years, I guess now I've been hunting with a pistol. I use a 44 Magnum revolver and I've shot 28 bull elk with it. And Justin, just so you know, uh, Justin has a, uh, another website, revolverguy.com. Maybe some of those stories will have to trickle over into Revolver Guy. Uh, yeah, I, I'm definitely a big fan of revolvers, and uh, I'm not a hunter currently. That's something I'm looking to, in, in, into getting into, and I'm, I'm really interested in handgun hunting with a revolver, and, and 20-something elk with, with a handgun is just a like a mind-blowing number, uh, knowing how close <laughs> well, you, you have to get uh, – God, that is absolutely incredible, man. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's all on all on public land. So I'm out there in the woods, you know, alongside these guys with the rifles trying to outcompete them. So it's difficult, but I try to stick to the heavy jungle timber and, you know, spot and stock in on them and uh, do what I can with the pistol. Well, it seems like you do pretty well. And I would, uh, man, if I could make it out there sometime, I'd love to just watch you do your thing. <laughs> oh, thanks. Get ready to hump your ass off, Justin. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I guarantee it, man. And, and it, Todd, is it true that when you go out to these big elk hunts, I, th- I think it was your mother that told me you just throw a, a handful of uh, oats, dry oats in your pocket? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, not quite. No, I mean, when I was a kid, I would always do that when I'd head out hiking around and just throw something in my pocket to get by. But no, I don't actually take any any food with me during the day hunting. I maybe take a bottle of water unless there's snow, then I'll just eat some snow. But um, I can get through a 20-mile you day and 12 hours without any food. I just uh, get home and eat a pound of meat in the evening and drink a gallon of water and I'm good to go again the next day. What do you think about that, Justin? That's about (laughs) as ATP as it gets, man. That is freaking awesome. That is ATP AF. So uh, one of the things a lot of people don't know, Todd, is that you've been a custom knife maker for decades, man. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I started back in 1987. There was a friend of my parents, a knife maker, an older guy that uh, was over at my parents' house having dinner. And I stopped by to say hi and started chatting with him. And he said, hey, come out to my shop and I'll show you how to build a knife. So I went out to a shop a couple weekends and he taught me how to build a custom knife and kind of got uh, hooked on it and started my own business and would just make, you know, got got some materials together and some uh, machinery to get in my garage and started building knives for guys I'd meet in school for a father's day gift for their dad or Christmas gift. And then it kind of expanded from there to a couple different art galleries and sporting goods stores that wanted to carry my knives. And pretty soon I had a dozen outlets around the country that were selling them. And then I decided to pull it all back to myself and just a website and just got rid of all the outlets and just selling them out of the house. And I've been doing it for, yeah, like 30, 31 years now. Uh, Skyblade Knives is the name of my company, skybladeknives.com. And it's uh, I use the best stainless steel that's available and a lifetime warranty. It's all just me doing everything with the designs and build the knives myself, take care of everything. When someone calls me or emails me, they talk to me. Todd, is that all you do? or uh, Do you have a day job or is that, uh, do you just make your living from uh, being a knife smith? 
No, that's kind of the, the side business. It's kind of turned into a second full-time job, but my main career job is with the Forest Service, and I do all the trails engineering here on the Gallatin Custer National Forest in Montana. So I do all the design, survey, staking, flagging, GPS, and any contracting for any new trails that we build or trail repairs, trail relocations, trail bridges, pretty much anything to do with the trail system. I do the engineering side of it. So that's my regular career job in the woods every day from about 1st April until you know, November till the snow comes in. And I just, you know, out in the middle of bear country in Montana every day. One of the things I want to circle back on the uh, your custom knife making that, uh, once again, it may not be a, a self-evident on the surface, Todd, is that the materials that you use, now you talked about the steel that you use, but I was shocked to see like you're using, uh, you know, some of the handles are made out of petrified mammoth tusks and all kinds of stuff. These are not cookie cutter knives. These are like custom high-end knives. Yeah, I use a lot of uh, different exotic hardwoods mostly. Um, I've used some mammoth tusk ivory for some handles for some of the collectors. It's pretty expensive, so you pay for it, but uh, it looks beautiful. It's beautiful type material. And sometimes uh, elk antler and bone and other other things, but mostly exotic hardwoods from around the world. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at your website now, and all of these knives are absolutely beautiful. If uh, I, I would definitely encourage the listener to go out there and, and check those out. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. It, yeah, my website, it's like 20 years old, so you have to kind of scroll around through. It's not really mobile friendly. i got to update that. But uh, you can get a good look at the knives and get my email or my phone number and give me a call. Justin, any, anything else, man? Awesome. Well, if, if your if your product's good enough, it it, it sounds like uh, you're doing fine with uh, a twenty a, a five year old website. So, um, <laughs> uh, it, that's probably secondary to the to the actual quality. So, um, do you want to go ahead and jump into Act Two, Rich? And are, do you feel like we've laid the groundwork sufficiently here? Yeah, man. All right, Todd. Um, why don't you go ahead and uh, I'm just going to let you take it away, man. Tell us, tell us what happened. Well, it was October 1st, 2016. So two years ago, it was a Saturday morning, about uh, two weeks before the main general hunting season started. And I just wanted to get up in the woods and scout for some elk and kind of get an idea where I wanted to hunt in the next few weeks. So I got to the trailhead at oh, about an hour before daylight. And headed up the trail in the dark with a flashlight and my backpack and and just kind of yelling out every 30 seconds or so, hey, bear, coming up the trail, just to make sure I didn't surprise a bear in the dark. And I got about three miles up the trail, and it was right at daylight. And I stepped out into this little clearing, little opening, and at the other end of the meadow, uh, this sow grizzly and two cubs step out about the same time. And we see each other. And she immediately turns and just runs up the ridge and up the trail and over the ridge, disappears. So I'm thinking, that's a good bear. She doesn't like people. She's gone the other direction with her cubs. I don't have to worry about her anymore. And I'll just head the opposite direction and spend my day up in the high country looking for elk. So I waited about a minute, didn't see her. So I took a few steps and up the opposite direction. And I heard a noise and kind of turned and looked over my left shoulder. And she had dropped her cubs up on the ridge somewhere and then circled around behind me. And when I turned and looked, she was coming over the ridge, probably 35 or 40 yards away. And she's coming wide open in a full charge. She's got her ears laid back. She's low to the ground, just flying through the brush and the grass and had bear spray hanging on my chest and uh, chest and chest holster. And also a 
10 mm right there as well. And I just instinctively grabbed the bear spray because that's what I always carry for work. And I just pulled it out, pulled the safety clip and looked back up, kind of expecting a bluff charge, but prepared just in case. And here she is now at 30 feet. She'd covered that entire distance in like two seconds and she's 30 feet away. And all I had time to do is just start stepping back and spraying. And I gave her a full blast of bear spray, but just her momentum at, you know, 35 or 40 miles an hour is what a grizzly bear can run. And her momentum just instantly carried her through the spray and she was on top of me. And I went down on my face and put my hands behind the back of my neck to try to protect my neck and my vitals and my face. And she bit me four or five times on the right arm and shoulder and then started coughing from the bear spray. And just immediately she was gone that quick. So in like five seconds, it was over. And I just was like in shock, like, wow, what just happened? And stood up and, you know, told, said to myself, wow, you're lucky to survive a grizzly bear attack. And, you know, the bear spray didn't work immediately, but it definitely ran her off within a few seconds. And so I looked at these puncture wounds in my arm and said, okay, I got to you know, get on down to the hospital and get some stitches. So I picked up my stuff and headed down the trail. And I had uh, probably five or six minutes of hiking down the trail, for, you know, three, 400 yards away or five, 600 yards. And I was just about to cross the creek where the trail goes by the creek there. So it's kind of noisy. And all of a sudden I, I heard something and turned and here she was again, right behind me. And this time it's like 10 feet away. And I just saw her out of the corner of my eye and she barreled me right into the back and knocked me down on my face in the dirt. And this time she is really mad. And her first, I went back down and put my arms up around my head again. And that first bite was in my left forearm. And I heard the crunch of the bone and just felt all that muscle and tendons and nerves. And that pain just made me wince. And I kind of went, ah, made this noise and pulled my arm away. And that movement and sound just triggered like a frenzy. And she just picked me up and started shaking me, slammed me down bit me probably 20, 25 times in my right arm and shoulder, bit me in the side at one point. And I know it kind of turned me and I looked right into her eye from just inches away. And just, I just used every bit of strength I had to pull myself back into a face down position and protect all of my face and my vitals. And I just knew that I tried to fight back or do anything. She was going to kill me and I just had to play dead. So I just kept telling myself over and over, it's like, don't move. She's going to leave. She's going to go check on her cubs. And at one point, a claw caught the side of my scalp and ripped a five-inch gash in the side of my head. And so my eyes filled with blood, and she's just picking me up, shaking me. I remember the pain from that first bite was so intense and excruciating. But then your adrenaline's going, and it's that, that will to survive. And you know that if you make any sound or movement, you're going you're gonna to die. And so I just blocked out the pain. And I don't remember any more pain after the first bite, but I do, it's like my other senses were heightened. I do remember how bad she smelled, just this rotten stench. And I remember the sound of these big inch and a half canines bearing into the muscle in my arm. And it just makes this crunching sound. And then she would be sniffing the back of my neck. And then she'd pick me up and shake me again and slam me down in the dirt, my face in the dirt. And she'd try to roll me over. And I just used every bit of core strength I had and that will to survive, just roll right back on my, on my knees face down and just protect myself. I knew that if I got flipped over on my back and she's standing on me, it would be over. And after, you know, a minute or two, which seemed like a couple hours, she just stopped. And that was probably the eeriest part of the whole thing is her standing on my lower back and she, her claws are like dug into my back, just below my backpack. I've got scars there from these little claw marks. 
she's just got me pinned to the ground and she's sniffing the back of my neck and I can feel and hear that breath right on my hands and on the back of my head. And she would sniff and then she would bite my shoulder and then she would sniff and then she'd bite my arm. And just, I think just testing to see if I was still a threat to her, her or her cubs, or if I was incapacitated. And finally she stopped biting, just stood there for like 30 seconds, probably just looking around. And then she just stepped off and disappeared. And so I'm thinking, okay, is she 10 feet away? Did she leave? I don't know. I don't want to trigger another attack. So I'm not moving at all. Just staying face down like that, trying not to even breathe or make a sound. And I got to thinking if she goes and checks on her cubs and then comes back again to see if I'm still there, she's going to attack me a third time. And I've got a broken arm. I've got tendons sticking out of my arm. The other arm's chewed up. Um, I can't see anything. My head's ripped open. I, it's like, I'm not going to survive another attack. So I decided I need to protect myself. So I reached for my, my pistol on my, my chest holster. And I really slowly pulled my arms down, reached for that. And it was gone. It had been torn off during the attack. And so I felt completely helpless. My bear spray's gone. My pistol's gone. I have a broken arm. I'm pretty useless right now. So I just knew I had to get out of there. And so I really slowly reached up, wiped the blood from my eyes and look both directions. I didn't see her, but I saw my pistol laying over there about 10 feet away. So I just dove for that, pulled it out of the holster, hammer back, and she wasn't anywhere around. So I'm like, okay, get out of here. So I tucked the pistol under my left armpit. So my left arm was completely useless. So I just tucked it into the armpit where I could get to it easily with the right hand, picked up my bear spray and headed down the trail. And I had about a three mile hike, took me like 45 minutes to hike out of there. And once I got down a couple hundred yards down the trail, I stopped and, you know, I felt pretty safe that she wasn't going to get me again. I'm, I felt safe now. And so I'm checking my wounds to see if I need any first aid, any bandaging and determined that I didn't have any severed arteries. So I wasn't going to bleed to death, go into shock. So I just knew I could just keep hiking, get to the truck. And if I have to do something there, I will. So it took me like 45 minutes to get to the truck and finally I felt completely safe once I got to the truck and I'm like, okay, I'm going to survive. You're messed up, but you're going to get surgery. You'll be okay. So I thought I need to write a note and put on the bulletin board because all these other bow hunters might be coming in or hikers. I need to warn them of an aggressive bear in the area. So I'm trying to get my pickup and get a little sticky note out and trying to write a note with a broken arm and blood dripping off my fingers. And it, it just wasn't working. So I decided to give up on that. And I just let her, you know, let fishing game know once I got to town. So I, uh, picked up my stuff, did a little, I thought I'd better do a little quick selfie video and a couple photos to show my friends how crazy of a weekend I had before they fixed me up in the hospital. So I took a 30 second video and a couple photos of my wounds and headed on into, t into town. Pretty crazy. Uh, yeah, man, that, that is, that is such a crazy story. And I want to ask deeper questions about all this stuff, but can we, Todd, can we start out with, I think, I, I think uh, understanding the, just the sheer power of a grizzly is probably something you're much more intimately familiar with than most of our listeners, myself included, because that's something that's kind of, you're kind of exposed to on a daily basis for the people like myself that live in a big city or people uh, like Rich that maybe live in the country, but aren't out in the truly wild places where you are. Can you can you talk about how big these animals are and how fast they can cover ground and just the tremendous power and how scary these things are? Yeah, they're they're an amazing animal. Um, a grizzly, I mean bears in general, but grizzly bears they can run thirty five to forty miles an hour, 
And to give you an idea, there's uh, they clocked. Uh, there's a bear that used used for movies. It's in our area up here. His name's Adam the bear, and he's an 850 pound grizzly bear. And they had clocked him on a 50 yard dash, basically. And his fastest time was 2.9 seconds, and his slowest time was like 3.2 seconds wow. for 50 yards. So he's covering, you know, almost 20 yards a second. So just amazing speed and the power. I mean, these animals and the bears will kill elk, they'll kill bison, they'll, you know, they're the top of the food chain basically around here. And just the power is amazing and their speed and they have bears actually have the best sense of smell of any, any animal out there. So they can smell you from miles away. They're just, they're killing machines. They're, they're excellent hunters. And, you know, I've seen so many of these in the woods over the years, just hunting, you know, out hunting or out working at the forest service. I probably see a dozen bears a year couple of grizzly bears, a lot of black bears. And most of the time they go the other direction or they'll look at you and they wander off. I've had one or two that kind of bluff charged in to see what I was. And then they realize what you are and they take off and go the other direction. So usually you don't have a problem, but you know, every once in a while something goes wrong and it's usually a sow with cubs or it's a, a bear that's on top of a carcass. It's got food and it's going to protect its food source. And if you run into that, you're too close, you're in their space, um, you can be in trouble. Todd, you've mentioned the word bluff charge or the term bluff charge a couple of times so far. Can you explain that uh, for the layperson? Well, uh, sometimes a bear sees you and if you're too close to it or it's got cubs or it's around a food source, it wants to get you, it wants to scare you out of the area, or maybe it just doesn't know what you are for sure. And so it comes running in a bluff charge. It might come running into 50 feet, say, and it stop and it looks at you. It might stand up, uh, snap its jaws, uh, do something that's like trying to warn you that it doesn't like you. And it's, it, you're in its space and it wants you out of there. And that's where you're trying to back up and get out of the way. And so usually a bluff charge <clears throat> might come in maybe 50 feet, maybe it's 50 yards. You never know. Stop, look at you, check you out. And then it turns and goes back and it might do that three or four times or just once and be gone. And you'd been bluff charged probably how many times before the attack? I think just, I think twice I had a, a black bear and a sow. I had ran into a sow with cub grizzly about 15 years ago at work. And she bluff charged into about, Oh, 50 or 75 feet. And she would snap her jaws at me and kind of stand up, sniff and woof at me. And I just kept backing up the hillside slowly and away from her. And she'd bluff charge four or five times until I was far enough away. She felt safe. And then she disappeared back into the trees. Yeah. And was it you or someone else that's telling me about being chased up a tree by a bear one time? Uh, back in 19, no, it was like 1991 or 92. I think it was right before bear spray was even invented. And I was up by West Yellowstone, up by Yellowstone Park, working in a, a for the forest ecology group for the Forest Service. And we were out doing some timber projects. And I had a grizzly come down the road, and I saw it from about 80 yards away, a big boar, male grizzly. And, you know, first thought I thought was, okay, I need to get up a tree. And I looked, and it's all these lodgepole that are about 12 inches in diameter, and there's no limbs. And so I'm like, oh, that's not a good thing to climb. I look back, and the bear's at like 30 yards coming wide open all of a sudden just that quick. And so I just instantly hit that nearest tree and shimmied up at about 30 feet, kind of like a Superman climb. And then this bear's next thing I know, I'm looking down at this grizzly bear, at the bottom of the tree, looking up, woofing and kind of snapping his jaws at me. And then it just kind of wandered off and disappeared into the woods. But, you know, a bear can 
bears climb trees fairly easily. Um, black bears have really sharp claws. They can climb up a telephone pole. Grizzly bear, their claws aren't quite as sharp and longer claws, but they can climb anything that has a limb or they can get a grip on, you know, if a kid could climb the tree, a bear, a grizzly bear is going to climb it. No problem too. So you climbing up a tree does not necessarily get you away from a bear. So I didn't know that at the time, but (laughs) so, uh, so climbing a tree might buy you a a little bit of time, but it very likely, uh, very likely might not. Um, so one thing you mentioned, uh, just there is bear spray. And you talked about that earlier when you, uh, when you, when you saw the sow take off, you, you turned around and continued on, and then you heard her and turned around and saw her coming back. You pulled out your bear spray and was it, t- tell me about bear spray just a little bit. I've carried that in the, uh, when I lived in the Pacific Northwest, uh, like basically anywhere in Washington and Canada, especially Canada, they really pushed, uh, carrying bear spray. It, it, uh, she ran right through that, but tell me about that a little bit. Was that just her momentum or? Yeah. Or bear what? spray is a pepper spray that cayenne type pepper spray, and it gets into their sinus cavities and is very uncomfortable. And like I said, bears have the best sense of smell of any animal. So they're very sensitive to that. And it, it works well. I'm a big believer of bear spray. I carry it all the time. I definitely support it and would push it. Um, you know, in my situation it was kind of unique because she didn't come in and stop or hesitate or, you know, bluff charge to check me out, which if I'd have sprayed her, then she would have been very uncomfortable and she would have turned and left, but just her speed at 35 or 40 miles an hour, she probably was in that cloud of spray for a split second, you know, a quarter of a second. And then she went through it and whether she took a deep breath at that moment, or, you know, it took us with her adrenaline going, it probably took a couple seconds for her to, to affect her as well. And so I think it was just the unique situation with her speed and momentum that just carried her through it. And then there I was. So she attacks me, bites me. Now, all of a sudden, she realizes this is not good. And just as quick, she took out of there 100 miles an hour. So I think for the listener, you know, I remember when this first happened. And, of course, I'm like, oh, my God. And and then in talking to you and, and reading some of the comments, people are like, why didn't he shoot her first? And, and I'm, tr- you know, I'm trying to explain to people, like, this man has been exposed to bears hundreds of times, and it's never been an attack one. And then tell us more about, if you could, the thought process of grabbing the, the pepper spray and not the 10-millimeter handgun. Okay. Well, it kind of goes back to my job at the Forest Service. I'm not allowed to carry a firearm uh, in a government vehicle or on the premises at my job unless I was law enforcement. So I have bear spray, and that's it. So every day in the woods out there, you know, six, seven, eight months out of the year out there by myself in bear country, and I have bear spray and that's my protection. So I, I'm walking through the woods. I pull it. I practice just randomly pulling it, pulling the safety. I'm, I've thought about it. I've had the classes. I know what I shouldn't, shouldn't, should and shouldn't do. And it's just become muscle memory to pull that bear spray. And so even though I had a pistol with me that day, all of a sudden you're surprised with the bear charging my instinctive movement was to pull that bear spray. You know, had I carried a pistol all those years and practiced with that, I would have instinctively drawn the pistol, but that's not the case with my job. So I pulled the bear spray and like, yeah, and it's usually, you know, it's rare to get attacked. So it's usually a bluff charge at the most. I didn't even really, I thought she'd just come down the hill, turn and run off again. And, you know, was surprised that she just kept on coming. Usually they'll stop and kind of check you out, but she never hesitated, never slowed, came right through it. So Bear spray is what I had. 
uh, you know, had I drawn the pistol, um, at first, well, after I pulled the bear spray, it was too late now to go to plan B. She was on top of me. So I didn't have a chance to pull the pistol. Had I pulled the pistol first, you know, maybe I'd have got a shot or two off. Um, maybe I'd have missed, maybe I'd have winged her. The odds of killing or stopping a bear with a pistol are very slim. Their head is shaped kind of like, you know, a missile shape, everything coming to the front ricochets off to the side and their brain is in the back half of their skull. So shooting one even into the eye, it just goes right into the eye socket and right back out the side. And the odds of breaking through the skull, unless you have a really large caliber rifle is probably not going to happen. You might shoot one through the heart, but we know that, you know, you shoot a deer through the heart, it still runs a hundred yards. So shooting one in the heart or the chest or the lungs doesn't necessarily stop it. It still has time to chew on you. Uh, maybe you, you know, you got a lot of bone, a lot of meat, a lot of fur hair there, hide, that's going to slow a bullet down as well. So no guarantee that the pistol is going to stop it. No guarantee that the bear spray is going to stop it for sure. But having both of those, knowing how to use them, practice with it and uh, being prepared for whatever it is that you have, I think is the key. That's a great answer, man. That's a, a really thoughtful answer. And I, I really appreciate that because I, I can totally imagine the same thing. Well, I just, I just would have shot it. Uh, but there's, there's a lot more to it than, than just that. Uh, kind of a side note, and I, I want to come back to the story, but um, if a bear attacks, is that bear, uh, like does the Forest Service mark that bear for destruction or what happens with that? Uh, not necessarily. Um, I know that after my attack, the fishing game and the uh, grizzly bear study team people went back up on horses looking for that bear. And had she, had they found her and she charged them on horses, they may have, may have shot her and killed her, but they did not even see her as far as I know. And so she's probably still out there. Um, usually if it's a charge or if, if there was a fatality, they would probably really spend some time trying to hunt her down, but, um, just being an attack and having the fact that there was cubs there. So she had cubs of the year, the young cubs, it, it was a protective, protecting her cubs kind of thing. It was a defensive thing. So, you know, she was probably more aggressive than any bear I've seen just because she came clear back around and circled behind me. But to her, I was the threat to her cubs. So you really can't blame her for that. I don't have anything against grizzly bears. I don't want to go out and kill any or anything like that. But, uh, you know, I'm in her territory and her country. And unfortunately, it just everything kind of went wrong. And I but luckily, I survived. Hey, Todd, one of the things that you told me, and I thought this was an incredible description to help me wrap my mind around what it must have been like, was you described it um, something along the lines of like, it was like a sledgehammer with teeth. Do you remember that? Yeah, I think I used that term because instead of just, it wasn't just biting me. It was like she'd, she'd like, slam me down, pick me up, shake me around, slam me again, then bite me all kind of at the same time. So just the, the, the strength behind, you know, this bear was probably, you know, I don't know how big she was for sure, but she was a mature full grown, you know, grizzly. So she might've been 400 pounds and she would just pick me up and shake me like a rag doll and then just slam me into the ground and I'd or throw me and I'd like roll a couple times. I just roll back face down again to protect myself. And instantly she was on top of me again. And then when she was standing on me and just had me pinned to the ground and just like just smashed into the dirt, I could barely breathe and I'm getting, you know, just crushed. And just to feel that strength and the power behind an animal like that is just amazing. So that that calls to mind the movie The Revenant. Have you seen that? Yes, I, I did see that. Um, it, I'd say that it was 
what happened to me was very similar to that scene in the revenant just just a rag doll you have no chance there's nothing you can do just being picked up and shaken and slammed and the bear just on top of you just dominating you completely very scary situation and just to give the listener a little bit of context how much do you weigh todd I weigh about 175. So 175 pounds just being slammed around like a rag doll. That's I, I can kind of picture that. Man, I mean, I mean, there's no way to really picture this unless you've personally seen it or experienced it. But uh, that's uh, that's pretty amazing, man. What? Yeah, and, a, and a, a bear is even so much stronger than you're thinking in that situation. I mean, a bear can pick up and drag an elk away that weighs, you know, 500 pounds. So my 170 pounds or whatever is is nothing. Bears are just extremely strong. They're they're killing machines. They're made. They're predators. They're made to take down, you know, large animals and large, you know, big game. And they don't have, you know, one bite could have threw that my hands into my neck and it would have been all over. Just crushed my spine. One bite. Had she flipped me over, one bite could have taken my face off or ripped my throat out. And just, you know, I was just very lucky in the whole situation. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, what what role do you think your backpack played in your survival, Todd? Because you were face down. I mean, was it offering a lot of protection? When, when you mentioned you're getting picked up, was it picking up the backpack and you or was it picking you up? I mean, can you tell us about that? Uh, I think a little bit of both. Uh, the backpack definitely helped the center part of my back. My backpack had a lot of chew marks and t- tears in it. And she'd grab me by the backpack, pick me up and kind of shake me. But, you know, I had my arms up around the back of my neck. So she was grabbing my arms a lot as well and my shoulders. And so most of my wounds were I had probably 25 bite wounds in my right arm and my shoulder. And that's where most of the damage was. But, yeah, she'd pick me up by the backpack. She picked me up by the arm, I think, one time and kind of shook me and it kind of rolled me to the side. And then I just kept pulling myself back face down and uh, just, yeah, crazy. <laughs> Running so, it through my mind, it's just wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah this, this this is a wild story, man. So uh, you you survived that initial contact. She took off, and you started back down the trail. I'm just curious what was what was going through your mind when you realized she had come back, and and here she comes again. And um, I, I'll give you a chance to answer that, but I, I also want to point out, like, I'm just amazed by your presence of mind of, of, I can't move. I have to get in this face down position and not move and not make a sound. Can you just talk about, talk about what was going through your mind a little bit? Well, you know, go, <clears throat> I've had like some bear safety classes, bear awareness classes, and I read a lot of information about it. And I know that you can't, you can't fight back against an animal like that, a grizzly bear, especially. And so I knew I had to be face down and protect my my vitals in my face and they i think they tell you or they used to tell you to to lie face down with your arms out to the side so the bear can't flip you kind of spread out on the ground and well it's a bear that can flip an elk over with one paw it's not going to have any problem flipping a human over whether you're got your arms spread out or not so i for whatever reason chose to be curled up in a ball because my sides my arms could protect my face and my vitals more and just this you know her on top of me and uh, it's just hard to explain getting all <laughs> I start telling the story I get all excited my start talking faster and faster you know but uh just there's I don't know it's, it's amazing how much strength and, and speed and what they can do to you and just tear you to pieces and trying to protect myself any way I can by protecting my face my vitals and staying face down, knowing that if I if she flips me over, it's going to be over. She's going to tear me apart, and it's just that will to survive to 
keep facing straight down to keep telling myself over and over, don't move. She's going to leave. You're going to get through this. It was just, uh, an experience. I hope I never have to go through again. That's for sure. I think I kind of lost track on what you had asked there, but <laughs> I get into the story and I, I kind of forgot what you were saying, but no, just, yeah, just trying to get a feel for kind of what you were thinking when, when that was happening. And, you know, one thing you said that you said toward the end of it, her, she's, she's got you pinned to the ground and you can feel her sniff the back of your neck and bite, take a little pause, sniff your arm and bite. And then she just stops and she's standing there and you said it was maybe 30 seconds and, Man, I, that must have felt like an eternity. Uh, that thirty seconds must have felt like hours waiting on, on her to to decide she's finished. Yeah, it really was. I mean, it was probably only like yeah, thirty seconds or a minute at the end there. But it, yeah, it did feel like hours because it going through my mind is like, what? When's the next bite coming? You know, it's like okay, you got to just block this out. You're waiting for the next bite and knowing you have to like pre- somehow not feel the pain, somehow block it out, somehow get through this. So you know that if you scream or move or yell, she's going to just keep chewing. And it's like, okay, she stopped. Maybe she's going to leave. And I just remember that feeling of, you know, one bite in the back of my neck and it's over, but I, I, she's going to leave. I can't give up. I can't just give to the end of that. I just have to keep telling myself she's going to go check on her cubs. And I, I just remember a thousand times through my head, I just kept telling myself, don't move. She's going to leave. You can get through this. And that was that will to survive, to block that pain out and just not giving up. Well, you know, Todd, that's a great description. And and I want to circle back to the kind of the original part of that. And that is 45 minutes walking down the trail after surviving two grizzly bear attacks. And we've all seen the video, Todd, that's gotten tens of millions of views of that big piece of your scalp that's kind of flapping down you're, you're, okay, so seriously, you're walking down the trail, man. You you can feel that flapping. I'm sure. You know, you you can feel maybe the, the inner the part of your skull getting some wind on it. I mean, what was going through your mind on that long 45 minutes out? Well, I actually, you know, once I got up and the tack was over, I grabbed my ball cap and threw it back over my head. So I think the hat was kind of holding part of that on, and I didn't know what the wounds were on my head. I just knew my eyes had been filled with blood, and I got blood dripping off me, and really had no idea. I just thought I had a big scratch on my head. I had no idea that I was half scalped until actually it wasn't even until the hospital when they finally took a picture of me in the hospital that I realized how bad my head was. So that wasn't a concern. It was more of the, my left arm was in excruciating pain. I mean, that original attacks, you know, you block everything out. I don't remember any pain, but as soon as it was over and you're starting to hike out of there, the pain in that left arm with a nerve damage, two tendons ripped out, a broken bone, it was just excruciating. And my arm is kind of crunched up and like, it felt like it was in a vice. And the other arm with all the puncture wounds, you know, it was sore, obviously, but nothing like my left arm. That's where the pain was really focused. And I just hiking out of there, just, uh, kept telling myself, all right, you survive this. You're okay. The farther you get out of here, the better off you are. Well, I was kind of worried about, you know, I still have three miles in bear country. Hopefully I don't run into another bear on the way out of here. So I still had bear spray in my hand, pistol tucked in my armpit and I was ready, but you know, I realized that I wasn't going to die. I wasn't going to bleed to death. And you know, it's just going to spend some time in the hospital and we just relieved to have survived that encounter and to be able to walk out of there you know my legs were fine everything all my attack wounds was on my upper body so luckily my legs were good i could hike out of there otherwise i'd try to been crawling out of there it would have been a lot worse 
but just uh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry, Todd. So I remember you and I were, and, and uh, Mike Seeklander were hiking up there a couple of years ago. We were in Bear Creek, and you were showing me the signs that the the bears have been rubbing on the trees and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I just I can't personally imagine what that 45 minutes alone walking out of there must have been like. It's just, I mean, that to me is almost as bad as the attack because you don't know what's coming next, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty useless at this point with a, with my left arm being, you know, shot. It's broken and it's messed up. I can't do anything with that. I've got my right hand with bear spray or the pistol. And, you know, like, like you said, it's like 45 minutes. It seems like forever hiking out of there. And it's like, a, I come around every corner going, I hope there's not another bear coming up the trail because there's, you know, it's bear country. There's a lot of bears in that area. And that's a very, you know, possibility of just running into another bear that's randomly coming up the trail that morning. And I run right into it and hopefully not another encounter because, you know, surviving this again is going to get tougher and tougher. So it was definitely a, very refreshing when I got to the truck and I felt hundred percent safe when I finally walked into the parking lot, like, okay, I can see everything around me. I'm out of the woods and I'm, I can head to the hospital. Now it's all over and just got to start focusing on healing up. And not only the concern of bumping into another random bear, were you worried at all that that saw was going to come back? No, I really wasn't after the second attack. Actually, the, the second attack, I don't think she followed me down the trail. I think it was kind of random bad luck. She had gone back over the ridge to where her cubs were, and there's a steep canyon on the other side. And with her cubs being really small, cubs of the year, she probably decided to go down the open ridge instead of crossing that big canyon. And she thought I was back up the trail still. And so here I'm heading down the trail thinking she's back up on the ridge. And I think those that ridge and the trail just kind of bead together you know a quarter mile down and we just kind of randomly came back together again she probably saw me and she's coming off the ridge to the creek she sees me down on the trail below her and you know she's recovered from the bear spray now and decides that she's going to get me good this time so i think it was just more random there and then you know after a, a few hundred yards or another half mile down the trail when i stopped to check my wounds at that point you know i was 99 percent sure she wasn't going to follow me down the trail and leave her cubs somewhere. And so I, I was more worried about uh, running into a different bear on the way out and not being able to defend myself. Well, Todd, I'm just thankful that uh, it, it was you and not uh, your cousin, Mike Seeklander. I know he listens to this show and, you know, you, you grew up slapping him around and uh, if it had been him that day, he would have been, he would have been, bear, he would have been bear food, buddy. <laughs> He's going to love hearing this. Oh yeah. He listens to it. I won't tell him that, uh, you know, anyway, um, before, Anything else, Justin, before we kind of move into Act 3? Uh, no, I, I think that's it. I think, uh, you know, Todd, I've, I've heard you on other uh, on, on Mike Seeklander's pod, Mike and Rich's podcast, and, uh, you know, I, I think this answered some questions that I still had in my mind. I, I, I think this uh, pretty much covers the, the, the event itself. Well, I, I guess one more thing, Rich, uh, on, on the day there. So, I'm Todd, I'm amazed that you had the presence of mind once you got to your truck. Like I, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes as you're discussing this. And it, by the time I had gotten in my truck after having been attacked twice, bleeding, made this 45-minute walk, like the only thing in my mind would be call 911 or haul ass as fast as I can. And <laughs> I, I love the fact that you took the time to say, yeah, I need to write a note. Uh, I need to do something so that everyone else coming through here knows that a bear attack happened here. That That's amazing to me, man. Well, it's, you know, it was a horrifying experience and having survived it twice. And at this point, you know, I'm at the truck, I feel completely safe now. And it's like, okay, I know I'm not 
going to bleed to death. You know, it's, I can see that I'm, I'm fine. Even if it's another half hour longer, you know, still, I'm still going to be okay. I'm going to make it. I can't undo this situation. And I just get to the trailhead. There was only one other truck in the trailhead. And I was kind of curious. I'm like, I wonder where those guys are hunting. I hope that I thought to myself, I hope they don't run into that bear. And then I got, then that's when kind of triggered in my mind. It's like, heck, there's only one truck here, but it's bow season on a Saturday. There's probably going to be more here. And that's when I thought I better just put a note up and just warn people, at least so they're, they're more aware, or they're just going to pay a little bit more attention when they're sneaking around and camouflaged in the woods, looking for an elk. And, you know, I don't want someone else to go through this situation or could be worse. You know, if she's, you know, now that she's attacked me and she's upset or mad or bear sprayed, she's probably more aggressive. And yeah, just picturing what could happen to someone else. And I thought, well, it'll just take me, you know, five seconds to put a note on the board and which turned into like a minute of failing. So I really didn't get it to work, but, um, gave it a try anyway. So let's talk about from there on out, uh, Todd, you, you get in the truck, I'm assuming you're calling some people and you're heading to the hospital. Tell us about that. And then, and then we'll move on into act three. Well, I didn't have any cell service, um, on the way to town. So I'm up on the mountain still. So I had about a 15 minute drive down through some four wheel drive roads and then down through a ranch area, ranch house. And I noticed a rancher was getting in his mailbox. And so I pulled up on the side of the road and I just kind of was trying to get his attention. I could barely lift my arm up to kind of wave through the window and get the window down. And he finally saw me and came over and he saw the blood all over me. I could see in his eyes. He was like, Whoa, what happened? You know, I said, I just got attacked by a bear. And I just asked him if he could call the hospital in Ennis and just let him know that I was coming. So I just didn't walk in there looking like this and surprise everybody. And he asked if I, you know, needed a, a ride. And I said, no, I'm bleeding all over in my truck. I don't want to make a mess of yours. And I knew I wasn't going to go into shock. So I'm like, I'm fine. I can drive myself. And if you just want to call the hospital. And so he took off to the house to do that. And I headed into town, uh, finally got down to the highway where I had cell service and I called my, my girlfriend and it was like eight 30 in the morning now. And so I called her and she answers. I did, I kind of wanted to ease into the situation. So I just asked her how she was and she said, Oh, I'm fine. Just going to go ahead and get uh, some, you know, coffee or tea with her girlfriend. And then she said, why are you calling me so early? Aren't you supposed to be up on top of the mountain all day? And that's when I kind of said, well, you know, I had a little situation with the bear and she was in uh, med school at the time. So I knew she would have a lot of questions. So I just kind of spilled it out and said, I got a broken arm. I got a, my head ripped open, 25 puncture wounds, a bite in my side, my shoulders, but said, I'm not bleeding to death. I'm driving myself to the hospital. I'm not going to go into shock. And if you want to meet me at the hospital, that would be great. And so she had a couple more questions and hung up with her and headed on into town and it took me another 10 minutes to get into Ennis and I pulled into the emergency entrance at the hospital and there was a police or a sheriff and doctor and a nurse kind of standing out front waiting for me. So I pulled in and at this point it had been a couple hours since my attack and my arms are cramped up from all the wounds and I can't even reach up to get my truck into park. And so the sheriff off sheriff came over and he kind of helped me get the truck into park and I couldn't get the seatbelt off. So he undid my seatbelt. And then I remember him, he was like, I'm surprised you took the time to buckle up. And I said, well, I just survived a, two grizzly bear attacks. I don't want to die in a car wreck on the way here. So he kind of chuckled and uh, then they took me in the hospital. And I remember walking in and everybody in the hospital had now heard that a bear attack victim was coming in. So everybody at work there was lined up along the the hallway there to see what I looked like as I walked in all bloody in a mess. 
and they spent an hour doing x-rays and then about seven hours of stitches on both my arms and shoulder trying to, and my head trying to get everything sealed back up. And I remember the doctor was stitching up where my left arm was broken. I had the tendon sticking out and he was telling me, he's like, you're probably going to have to see an orthopedic surgeon and have some surgery on this. I'm pretty sure these are tendons. And he's like, I'm just going to push him back in and, and stitch it over for now. And you'll have to do that tomorrow. And so he's trying to push these tendons back in my arm. And I remember they kept popping back out and he was getting all frustrated, but they finally got me all closed up and then uh, sent me home at the end of the day for sur- or go to the orthopedic surgeon the next day and get some surgery. All right. So you drive yourself to the hospital you get stitched up. Uh, what physical effects were there from this uh, over the long term? Are, are you... Uh, I, I guess, are you dealing with the physical effects of this now still? Well, I had three or four months of uh, physical therapy about three or four days a week just to get the motion movement back in my hand and my wrist and my fingers. I had had t- two tendons that were tore off and that whole forearm muscle was kind of turned into hamburger. It was shredded in like three pieces. And so they had to sew that back together and then try to figure out how to attach two tendons to it. And that was you know, when you're trying to attach two tendons to what looks like hamburger, it's tough to figure out exactly how to make everything work. So they got, everything's working well now. It'll never be a hundred percent. I'm a little short on strength in that wrist and fingers and arm. And my hand doesn't open up quite all the way, but, uh, I'm doing most everything I need to do. Um, I can't quite pull my bow yet very well because my wrist is too weak and keeps folding. So I need to strengthen that for another year or maybe get a brace made so I can shoot the bow again and get out bow hunting. But otherwise, most everything I'm, I'm doing, I can do, or I want to do. It's a little bit different. I've adapted, you know, to how I work in the shop and different things that I do with that arm. Cause it is a little bit weaker, but you know, could have been so much worse and just very, very happy to have survived that and be able to continue living my life and share my story and hopefully give people some ideas and, and, uh, hopefully prevent that from help happening to somebody else. Hey, Todd, tell us, so sharing your story, I think that's a great segue to talk about what's it been like to, to have fame and recognition and to have gone viral. Can you tell us about that experience for somebody who, you know, lives a pretty solitary life out in the woods? Yeah. Well, you know, to start there, I didn't, I don't think I even knew what a viral video meant what that was. <laughs> I had no idea. I don't pay any attention to that kind of stuff. And so I taken that video just to show a couple of my hunting buddies that we kind of, at the end of our weekends, we were always sharing our story. Like, how, oh, how many elk did you see? What didn't you see? What'd you pass up? And I thought, well, I got a good story here. I better record this. So that's who I was going to share it with. And then I got home after my, you know, the next, next day. And I'm thinking, well, there's a couple other friends that'll probably want to see it. Well, I'll just throw it on Facebook and just, you know, then, then 50 of my friends will see it. And that's probably all I really thought about was like, you know, a few of my friends will look at it. Some won't, whatever. I didn't know how this all expanded and went viral. And all of a sudden, two hours later, there's a hundred thousand people looking at it. And then a few more hours later, it's 500,000 and then a million. And then I think it was something like 39 million views in 48 hours. It just went worldwide and my phone blew up. My email blew up. Um, I had 4,000 Facebook messages in two days. I probably had 500 emails. Uh, I don't know how many times I just deleted my whole voice messages on my phone because it would just fill up with random numbers, people I didn't know. And most of it was uh, media. Every news station, radio talk show, magazine around the country and even worldwide, they're trying to call me to come do an interview and wanted to talk. And I'm not 
kind of person that, you know, I was not wanting to be out in front of a camera to talk to somebody, you know, I just, I blew it all off. I didn't respond to anybody. I just deleted everything. And I had people like, you know, they'd call from like, this is so-and-so from CNN in New York. And we hope you're feeling better, but we'd like to get you on a plane for an 8 a.m. interview on, you know, whatever morning show. And it's like, I haven't even washed the blood out of my hair yet. I still haven't got to the doctor to get surgery. It's like, I'm not flying to New York tomorrow morning. You know, it's kind of crazy what these people expect from you. But uh, it was just insane. The number of people that tried to reach out to do interviews and I turned everybody down for three or four months didn't talk to anyone, didn't respond. And then finally the local news station, actually, I think it was you and Mike with your uh, American Warrior Society podcast that you guys um, talked to me first and said, Hey, let's do a podcast interview. And I wasn't even comfortable with doing that, but finally did that. And then the local news station came over and did a filmed interview and then another one called and just kind of expanded from there. And so I did a number of other interviews, did some magazine articles, did a couple things for some different shows and got more comfortable with it and really wasn't, you know, it doesn't bother me at all anymore. But uh, at the time, that's the last thing I wanted to deal with. And all of a sudden I've got, you know, people knocking on my door on a regular basis. It was pretty crazy. So Todd, uh, back to back to one other thing on this. And uh, one thing that I've wondered about, did this make you gun shy at all about going back into the woods, uh, about going hunting do you do anything differently now um were there any like mental or psychological uh, impacts from this well i knew that i needed to get back into the woods right away and just you know it's my life whether it's recreation or work so i didn't want to be scared out of the woods so as soon as my arm healed up enough is about six weeks that i was in this brace and about the day that i got the brace off my arm i had four days left of hunting season so i went back to the woods first day was by myself um, still in bear country, but a different area. And I remember seeing a bunch of bear sign that day and some fresh tracks. And I just was pretty much panicked the whole day. My head was on a swivel and I had the pistol in my hand, hunt with the pistol said the pistol in my hand, just ready, just in case, but didn't see any bears. That was good. And then I went two more days with a buddy and actually went back to the attack site on the second, third day back in the woods. And we hiked up to that area and, you know, we were both, had weapons and bear spray and we're ready just in case, but stood on that spot. And I kind of told the story to my buddy, Nate, and I just remember him talking about how the hair was standing up on the back of his neck. And it was kind of a creepy to be in that situation, but I just knew that I had to be back out there. And I, you know, that spring I'm back in the woods, my first day in the woods that next spring for work, I pulled up to a trailhead and had a sow and a cub grizzly run across in front of me and stopped at about 50 yards. And she stood up and was looking at me and then took off with her cub. And it was just a good reminder that any day out there, this could happen again. People are always telling me, oh, you're never going to get in this situation again. It's once in a, or twice in a lifetime, once in a lifetime kind of thing. But every day I'm in the woods, it could happen again. The odds are it won't, but you put yourself in bear country and you spend your life out there. It could certainly happen. So my head is on a swivel more than it used to be. I always have my bear spray, have a pistol and I'm, I'm ready. I'm prepared. I'm trying to, I'm hopefully, hopefully I can see the situation before something unfolds. I can see that bear before she sees me back out of the situation. She moves on by, I don't have an issue. Uh, hopefully I can avoid anything like that in the future, but it definitely, I'm more anxious in the woods. It's I'm more cautious. 
I look at it differently. And I think every day that goes by, it, it's a little bit better. And I'm sure that over the coming years, it'll feel more and more comfortable. But um, yesterday I was hunting, walked right by where I was attacked, hunting that same bear country up there. And, you know, I usually wait till there's snow. So at least if there's a bear that's been in the area, I see the tracks, I'll just leave if there's been a grizzly bear. But, you know, there was no tracks yesterday. I did 14 mile loop and didn't see a single bear track. So I felt pretty safe, but it's still not the same. It's different than it used to be. I used to love to be at the trailhead an hour, hour and a half before daylight. I'd hike in the dark to get four or five miles in at daylight because that's your best time to get into the elk is right at morning light and i don't feel comfortable doing that anymore i wait till i can see i want to if there's going to be a bear coming at me i at least want to see it coming and have a chance so it's changed how i hunt it's not it's different for sure and how i just you know hike in the woods but uh, i'm getting used to it a little bit more every day and i'm back out there and i'm not i'm not giving up i'm not going to let it keep me out of the woods awesome and i i want to be respectful of your time because we're we're about an hour in todd there's a couple more questions that i really would love to have you talk about with our with, awesome man? One of the things that you were telling me about uh, is the people that had also survived bear attacks, and there's a small community of them, and some of them have reached out to you and, and tell you their story. Um, I was not aware of that that there's this community of survivors. You want? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think I've had probably five. I think it's five different people that have been attacked by a bear have contacted me. I think I've talked to three, at least three of them or four of them over the phone and kind of told me their story. Uh, some of them up in Alaska, guy from, you know, a couple in Alaska, a couple in Montana. Uh, we just had another guy that was attacked here about a month ago during bow season, just in the Paradise Valley, an hour from or half hour from Bozeman here. And uh, we, we've, I talked to him or just messaged him and he was going in for surgery on his arm and he was going to give me a call. So we we're going to chat a little bit as well. So there's a lot of people out there that have had, you know, a similar situation. And I think in the last three or four years, there's been three or four attacks in Montana that I'm aware of. So you get more and more bears out there. There's a lot more grizzly bears and a lot more people that are recreating in the woods and you're going to have more encounters. And I think it's good to these people out, you know, kind of telling their story. They're sharing with me. We talk about what we could do differently or what we did right or wrong or how we can, you know, share our experiences to help other people. Awesome, man. And what, what does the future hold for, for Todd, the Todd? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I've just, it seems like every couple, every week or two, I'm doing a podcast or I've got someone calling about a magazine. I just did, uh, some stuff a week ago with, uh, outside magazine, did an interview with them and we did some filming with, uh, Adam, the, the movie bear did a little story there. And talking about a class that I'm working with, with there's a company in Bozeman here called Tactic, and they have a class called Surviving the Grizz, and they spend a a day working with handguns and you know shooting under stress in a stressful situation at a moving target like a bear coming at you, and they spend a day talking about bear awareness, bear safety and uh, using bear spray and so i tell my story and we look at we get to the class hangs around with adam the bear and we talk with the owner and the trainer there and and just get people more aware of what it's like in bear country so i've been sharing my story hopefully to help some people you know know what to do in bear country uh, be prepared and to you know have your bear spray have your pistol know how to use it and you know, who knows what's going to be next. You know, I think I'm going to write a book. I need to tell my story in a book, but then also just my life with the the pistol hunting and the fishing and the growing up in Montana and the, 
the caving and the dirt biking, just all the crazy experiences I've had in uh, 45 years of being in Southwest Montana. So I think I'm going to try to work on a book and uh, I don't know, maybe there's uh, some movie thing out there someday or some other kind of a show. But right now it's been a lot of just, you know, small interviews, podcasts and sharing my story. It's been great meeting a lot of new people and doing something different in my life instead of just working in the shop, building knives and hiking in the woods all the time. Well, Todd, if you write a book, man, we better be your, uh, well, maybe not your first stop, but we definitely want to be on your promo <laughs> tour, man. That sounds like an awesome book. Um, you mentioned something there that, uh, kind of shook something loose with me. So can you give our listeners like advice? Here's what to do. If you're attacked by a black bear or grizzly bear, is there a difference? What do you do? obviously carry bear spray, but beyond that, what's, what's the recommendation? Well, I'll go to a couple things here. First thing I tell people when they're out in the woods is, you know, make sure you have bear spray or have pistol or both and make sure you know how to use it, have practiced it. The more you practice it, the more you do it, um, it just becomes muscle memory and you automatically respond to us, to a surprise situation. And I tell people to take their earbuds or their headphones off and pay attention and look around and listen. So, you know, it's coming. If something happens, if you do get charged from behind, like I did, you know, you want to be able to hear it coming and be able to defend yourself. And then if it's a black bear, they say that on a black bear, you want to fight back. And a black bear isn't near as aggressive as a grizzly as far as or other. If a black bear is attacking you, it might be trying to kill you. So they would, they tell you to fight back. If it's a sow with cubs and a black bear, you know, it might be similar situation to mine to where she's just, you're, you're a threat. And as soon as the threat's over, she's going to leave. But any grizzly bear attack, uh, there's nothing you can do. A grizzly is going to tear you to pieces if you try to fight back. And usually it's just a defensive thing. So play dead, try not to make any sound, get into that mode of that will to survive, try to block out the pain and just let her chew on you a couple times and hopefully they leave and leave you alone. But if you have the bear spray, know how to use it, know how to use your pistol, be prepared. Uh, you never know when it's going to happen. You know, it's like, I, I realize how fragile life is and how quickly things can change. And it just, uh, I don't know, you have to just, Oh, it's just a crazy experience. You got to get out there and enjoy your life, but you have to be prepared for whatever might happen because you never know when it's coming. One awesome thing from this story that I take away is bad things can happen. Bad things can happen anywhere. Bad things can happen on the street where I live. They can happen in the woods where you live. But you, I love that you're not letting that stop you. You're not letting that be the, the guiding, defor, guiding force in all of your decisions. It, it definitely is a consideration. Like you said, it's not the same now. But I, I love that you're right back out in the woods the first opportunity you had. Yeah, definitely. I knew that with my job working in the woods and with just my lifestyle of always being in the woods, that if I just stayed inside and was afraid of it, I would I would just never get back out there. And it's just I can't imagine not being out there. So I knew that going back out right away as soon as possible, which was like the day after I got my brace off my arm and back in the woods. And I went right back into bear country hunting. And I still wanted to try to get an elk to put in the freezer for that fall. So and it was definitely scary. And it, you know, I was my, it was not comfortable. I probably didn't enjoy that day of hunting, but I got back out there and got through it. And that just made the next day a little bit easier and the next day a little easier. And, and you just, you can't give up, you know, there's a lot of bad things that happen in life, whether it's injuries or personal things or 
is something that affects people and you just ha- you never give up. It's just the will to survive, the will to keep going, to keep enjoying your life as much as possible. And um, just back in the saddle as soon as I could. That's awesome, Todd. So before we close out, man, anything else? Oh, just, uh, you know, like I said, the most important thing is just bring prepared for people and, you know, just have some knowledge of bear behavior and bear safety. Um, no bear identification. No, when you see a bear, is it a black bear? Is it a grizzly bear? And make sure you have your bear spray or a weapon or both. Know how to use it. Practice with it. So you have that muscle memory and that automatic response and just pay attention in the woods. You know, you, you, only, you may only have a couple seconds to make a decision in a life or death situation. So you don't want to mess it up. You got to be ready for it. Well, awesome, man. Todd, thanks so much for taking the time. This has been just an amazing interview, unlike anything we've ever done. Um, before we get off here, where can people find you? Where would uh, push whatever you want to push, man? Uh, well, skybladeknives.com uh, for my custom knives. And then you can find me on Instagram at todd.orr, Todd Orr, and Facebook as well. Um, it's pretty easy. You search on there. You just look for the guy with the bloody face and all the bear photos and videos and, and easy to find on, on the internet. So, uh, yeah, reach out. If anybody's got any questions or any, wants any more information, happy to talk to people. Todd, thanks for being on the show, brother. I'll see you out in Montana, man. Hey, thanks a bunch you guys. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Well, man, I don't even know what to say about that dude. Uh, first of all, I, it's a huge honor to get to talk to Todd. I know he, you know, like he said in the interview, he's got everybody, trying to get interviews and he's turning everybody down and, and now he's doing some, but it's still an honor to be on that very small list of outlets that he's giving a story to man. And I, I feel I, if he's listening to this episode right now, I want him to, I want to put that out on the air that we really appreciate the time that he took to sit down with us. Yeah, absolutely. Todd. Thanks again, man, because this, this story really fits right into our across the peak wheelhouse, man. It's, you know, being more competent, uh, and and dangerous and and survival and preparedness. So, I was just very glad he agreed to come on the show. Absolutely, man. So, I, I I there are a million lessons in this for the audience. And and at the end, I asked Todd to explain bear safety and what you know what people should do to be ready for a bear attack. And I think that's one lesson people could take from this. But I think there's a million. <coughs> I think there are a million other little lessons that if you're reading between the line, you can take out of this. Just, I'm amazed that at at the way that happened and the way he relates that. And it became obvious to me that one, he had the equipment he needed uh, for that encounter. And that's, that's a big piece of the puzzle. Uh, But more importantly than that, probably is he had the knowledge to know how to to deal with that situation. Would you agree? Yeah, the the presence of mind, like you mentioned when you were uh, interviewing him, you know, the the ability to stay calm when you got a bear jumping on your back, you know, and not want to get up and run off and take off and get devoured, you know, but to stay cool, stay in that what we would call in BJJ the turtle position, you know, and uh, let the bear do its thing. It's going to leave you alone here in a minute. Stay calm. Keep breathing and walk out of here. I, I'm amazed by that, dude. I like all my brain would be screaming, "Get the hell out of here! Run as fast as you can!" And that that takes an incredible amount of discipline. But that mental overcoming that mental aspect one and two, knowing what to do. No, like he had to know that. Yeah, the only way I'm going to sur- survive this attack is be quiet and be still. And and knowing that's a 
I think that's kind of what we're preaching here on the podcast is have the knowledge in your head. You can you can frequently make up for an equipment shortcoming if you have the right knowledge, but even if you have all the right stuff, it's real hard to make up for a lack of knowledge. True, and you know, I'm I'm glad we talked to him about because a lot of ignorant people on the internet have you know commented on on the video or or, or what have you like. Well, what, why weren't you carrying a gun? Well, he was carrying a gun. Okay, well, you were carrying a gun. Why didn't you shoot your way out of the problem? And I, I'm so glad he talks about that because not everything is a gun solution, especially when the bear's on top of you. Uh, you got to do other things that to, to stay alive. So just a, so many lessons. And, and one thing that he didn't say during this interview that I heard him say on on AWS, and I don't want to I don't want to put words into Todd's mouth, but he mentioned. Uh, even having some some understanding for the bear that that's a sow with two cubs and he doesn't want to leave those doesn't want to kill that bear and leave those two cubs without uh, you know basically in an unsurvivable uh, condition after that and I, I really appreciated that aspect of it too man if you kill the mother man you're essentially killing those children too you know what I mean and I don't know that I would choose the the grizzly bear and her cubs over my own life but I do respect that thought process that he was thinking about as he was getting attacked. I mean, that's just amazing presence of mind. We, man, we could probably go through a million and one different little lessons that we could tease out of this. Uh, I would encourage the listener to uh, to listen to this episode, re-listen to that interview. And I, I'll be honest, man, I, this is one I'm probably going to listen to a few times. This was fascinating. And again, I, I really feel honored to be to have this content, have this opportunity to actually talk to him and, and get him on the record saying this stuff. So uh, anyway, brother, uh, let's talk about the book of the week. Yeah, because it's a story of survival as well, and you just read it, but I'm familiar with the story as maybe a few of our listeners are. Can you tell us about what the book of the week is? I would love to, man. So again, the name of this book is In Harm's Way by Doug Stanton, and it's about the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. And I had known about the sinking of the Indy, uh, I mean, they've run specials on it on Shark Week and whatever, but uh, this is just a story that has so much irony built right into it. It was, it was sank just weeks before the end of the war, and you know it, the situation was compounded by all these ironic little twists of fate and had all these little things just been slightly different. It would have been a completely different outcome, but uh, essentially what happened, a Japanese submarine I-58 sank the USS Indianapolis. She was traveling unescorted and alone, uh, and she had been on a secret mission to deliver the atomic bomb that was uh, to deliver half, of, literally half of the world's uranium supply and some critical components of that bomb to Tinian, where it could be assembled and loaded onto aircraft to in the war. And it was sunk. No one knew it was sunk, even though uh, the Indy relayed some radio messages and uh, about 300 people went down with the boat, they estimate, uh, out of a 1,200-person crew. And so six, uh, I'm sorry, about 900 people are put into the water. And over those four days that they sat there before they were found, uh, many of them drowned. And, and just an incredible number of people were eaten by sharks. Um, actually, we watched Jaws yesterday to kind of... Uh, kind of getting that mindset because uh, Quint, the fisherman on Jaws that goes after the shark, relates a story of being a USS Indianapolis survivor. Almost everything he says is right on the money of the facts of exactly how that happened, man. That boat went down in 12 minutes. They were out there for four days. The the 
Shark attacks were just absolutely relentless, man. Potentially hundreds of animals out there in the water preying on those uh, on those poor defenseless sailors, man. It is such a gripping story, and man, I, I can't say enough good things about this book. I plowed through it in about two days. Yeah, that's an awesome book, and we probably need to do a show on that. Uh, I don't know that there's any lessons learned, but it's just an amazing story of survival and overcoming impossible odds and just a lot of things that went wrong on the back end and, you know, that led up to the tragedy as well. I mean, a lot of stuff there. Well, I'll tell you what, man, let's get that out on the calendar because there are a lot of lessons learned out of, out of that. Maybe not for, uh, you know, maybe not for survival. We're not going to tell you how to survive four days in the water, but, uh, you know, just following, following procedures, there's a reason procedures are in place. And, uh, you know, the, the aftermath of that whole thing is fascinating, too. Uh, I, I'm not going to go into it here. I'm not going to give it all away in case the listener wants to go read the book or, or listen to our full episode on it. But I'm going to go ahead and put that on the calendar, and uh, you can expect that sometime in, uh, I'm going to say, first quarter of next year. All right, man. Anything else? If not, go ahead and lead us out, bro. All right, man. So thanks to everybody for listening to Across the Peak. We really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen. Uh, if you've got the time... Rich and I would love it if you could write us a review in iTunes. That helps us spread the show. That helps us get found. And that helps us share this knowledge with people that need it. Until next week, remember, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous. You've been listening to the Across the Peak podcast. Be sure to visit acrossthepeak.com for show notes and bonus content. Until then, be safe. And if you can't be safe... Be dangerous.